We are grateful to the Lord for our children's church workers. We are doubly grateful to the Lord for the children that the Lord has placed here in Wake Chapel Church. We thank God for the privilege of telling them about the Lord Jesus and about his love for them. That didn't take long, did it, sweetheart? <laughs> they are precious to us. There is one other note. If I could be permitted to mention it, uh, we don't usually do this, but the nature of it, um, I just feel it incumbent upon me to mention. Altar flowers today are dedicated to the glory of God and in remembrance of Major Samuel M. Griffin by Sam, Cherie, Kelly, and David Griffin. Uh, he was killed while serving uh, the military. And uh, he was a pilot, and uh, he was a sweet Christian brother. I knew him well. Thank God for all of our military men and women, whenever they have served in whatever branch of service. While we're speaking about flowers, you will also want to be sure as you exit the foyer this morning, you notice on the left, our flower musician, magician, as I call her, uh, Mrs. Baines, uh, has prepared those. And I think all but just three or four of those flowers come out of her garden. So uh, the Lord's been good to us and blessed us in a whole lot of ways here. And we want to be mindful of it. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27 is our text this morning. <clears throat> I would like to read verses 23 through 27 before we go any further. Uh, you will hear them referred to again as we work our way through these few verses. But I'd like to have them in front of us before we do anything else this morning. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. You follow along in your Bible and let me read, please. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he himself was asleep. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? <clears throat> Pray with me, please. Our Father, we have opened before us the Bible. It is the Word of God. We have resident within us God the Holy Spirit, the only infallible teacher of the Word of God. And we pray that He would do that ministry in our hearts and in our lives this morning to teach us the truth. And then, Lord, when we leave this place, help us to be doers of the Word of God and not just people who've come to a service and, and heard a few verses read and explained. Help us, Lord. We need to be and we want to be doers. May the Spirit of God be our leader, our teacher, our guide, 
May he bring into remembrance all of the things that you have taught and said during your earthly ministry and are encapsulated for us on the pages of sacred scripture. Speak to us as we look into your word, and we'll give you the honor and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What kind of a man is it that would chide other men for being afraid in the midst of a great storm? Who is it that speaks words of healing to the hopeless leper like the centurion's servant? To the helpless sick like Simon Peter's mother-in-law? Who is it that can leave these people well in body and in soul? And that seems to be something of the question raised in verse 27. They marveled and said, what kind of man is this? After years of ministry, after years of walking in the steps of the Lord Jesus, the disciples had questions. What kind of a man is this? Now, there have been many answers across the centuries to this question. Many have said he's the carpenter's son. Others said he is the son of Mary. Others have said of him, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Still others in a different vein, referred to him as a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. Others have referred to him as my Lord and my God. Who is this man who could speak peace to the souls of men and women and peace to the seas? Again, even the disciples raised that question. In our day, Dr. Hugh Anderson professor of New Testament at the University of Edinburgh, has estimated that in the 19th century, okay, that's some time back, in the 19th century, he estimated that some 60,000 biographies of the Lord Jesus Christ were written. Who is this man? Well, his credentials are revealed to us in the opening chapters of the Gospels. And herein we have, I believe, a definitive answer to the question, what manner of man is this? Who is this man? His credentials, as expressed and as seen in the opening chapters of the Gospels, particularly the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, let us know that he is very God of very God. I fear sometimes that we as Christian people are vaccinated with a form of Christianity and we forget who it is that we worship. He is God. He is very God of very God. And his credentials prove that to us. And in our text this morning, we have one of these great credentials. This man arises from sleep and rebukes not only the sea, but the wind. And the result is a great calm. You know, today we hear the expression so often, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Jesus did. He was able to do something about it. Another thing which claims our attention in the verses before us this morning is, Jesus asked the question, why? Why? That struck me as being a bit unusual. Here is very God of very God, 
he is in possession of all knowledge that ever was, ever will be, ever has been. He's in possession of all of that knowledge. And he asks the question, why? Why? Well, other instances where Jesus might have asked the question, why, did not come to my mind readily. So I got down my concordance and looked up the word why, expecting to find maybe two or three times when Jesus asked the question, why? Much to my surprise, I found ten instances in the Gospel of Matthew alone in which Jesus asked, why? Why? That strike you as being unusual? You know, why should God, very God of very God, why should He ask the question, why? Well, I think with a bit of reflection, we can understand Certainly, Jesus was not asking why to gain information. He had it all. He was in possession of all of it. He was not seeking information at all. He raised the question why so that the disciples, I believe so that the disciples could see their own motivation. Um, I think we have a segment in this congregation this morning that understands this perhaps better than, than anybody else. Moms, have you ever watched your child do some misdeed, shall we say, and you looked at them, and what you said was, now, why did you do that? There are a few moms who've done that, maybe some dads. You are not asking for information. You know exactly why the little miscreant did what he did, right? Forgive me. That's very harsh to say it's a little miscreant, but they are sometimes. <laughs> Ever done that, though? Why did you do that? Jesus asked why, not because he wanted information, but because he wanted the disciples to see their lack of faith. And he even said to them, why are you timid? Oh, men of little faith. I want to look a, a little bit more closely at the verses that are in front of us this morning. I want to talk about the creation, first of all, creation itself, uh, the Sea of Galilee in particular. And then I want to talk a little bit about the Creator, and then about the creatures. Look first with me, please, at verses 23 and 24. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. And then this phrase at the end of verse 24, but he himself was asleep. This incident took place, obviously, on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, the rabbis uh, across time have spoken of this as the Sea of the Chosen. Uh, they also said Jehovah created the seven seas, but the Sea of Galilee was his delight. It's a beautiful place. Many of you have been there. Uh, it is 80 to 100 feet, 80 to 160 feet deep, and it's about 7 miles wide and 13 miles long. Now, uh, the interesting feature that must be taken into account when you think about the sea is that the fact that to the east there are mountains ranging some 2,000 feet up. And then to the north, there is Mount Hermon. So it's a beautiful place. 
And a great deal of our Lord's life and ministry was spent in that area. For instance, it was at Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, that Jesus made his home. And it was there that he performed 10 of his 33 recorded miracles. Also, by the sea, the Lord called his disciples. Remember, Capernaum was the place where Matthew had his tax collector's office. The Sermon on the Mount was preached on a hill nearby. There, Jesus walked on the water. There, he appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. And, of course, the verses that are before us this morning, he stilled the storm on the Sea of Galilee as well. So it's an important place in the life and in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus entered into a small boat, verse 23, perhaps with Peter, Andrew, and John, maybe a few others, and with a gentle breeze began to make their way across the lake. Mark, in his gospel, adds uh, an important thought, I believe. Mark tells us that it was evening. And it was after a long day, a tiring day in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was weary. And so he went to the back part of the boat, stern of the boat, and went to sleep. So to this point, it is a calm, restful scene, a blessed scene. We know by what we know about the Sea of Galilee today, it leads us to understand something perhaps of the circumstances behind what we read here in verses 23 through 27. The position of the Sea of Galilee in the Jordan Rift, some 700 feet below sea level. To the east and to the west, there are mountains, and that creates a natural condition for storms. Air masses rush down those mountains, creating violent storms on the lake. Dangerous, very dangerous, still dangerous to small craft. And that's evidently what happened in the incident before us this morning. In the description we read in Matthew's gospel, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. The word translated storm is the word from which we get our word seismograph. Uh, seismos, it means a shaking, a great shaking. That's what the word means. Now, these men were fishermen. They were accustomed to being on the water. But this storm obviously arose so suddenly, so quickly, with such fury that there was very little that they could do. Doubtless, it seems reasonable to conclude that their sail broke. The waves grew higher and higher. Look at your text. The boat was covered with waves, verse 24. Their boat was taking on water. Most likely the sky was black except for flashes of lightning. Just imagine a storm that would frighten seasoned sailors and navigators. Now that gives us a great deal of insight into what was going on here. This was not just a little uh, brief shower. This was a storm that scared people who were accustomed to being in a boat and on the sea, and on that sea, but they were frightened. It was a storm of such magnitude. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look with me for just a few moments at the Creator. Again, verse 24, 
there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves, but he himself was asleep. They came to him saying, and they, they awoke him, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and they became perfectly calm. The storm notwithstanding, the Savior was asleep. By the way, this is the only passage in the New Testament which speaks of Jesus sleeping. Only one. New Testament speaks of his rejoicing, his preaching, his walking, his resting, his eating, his dying, and a number of other things. But this is the only place that refers to his sleeping. It is said about the Lord Jesus that he was as much man as though he were not God, and as much God as though he were not man. Now, that's inexplicable, but it's true. We have that right here. He was a man. He was tired after a long day. He went to the stern of the ship and went to sleep. But he was God because when he got up, you see what he did. Both. Truly a man. Tired from the activities, but truly God as well. Verse 25, Matthew tells us that the disciples came and they woke him up. Now to me, uh, when, when I pondered that for a few moments, it, it was very interesting to me. Here are experienced fishermen, navigators, and to whom do they turn for help? A carpenter. The son of a carpenter. Interesting. Imagine that. It tells me three or four things. Number one, it tells me of the greatness of the storm. I think sometimes we underestimate what went on here. But it tells me of the magnitude of the storm. It tells me also of the magnitude of their fear. They thought they were going to die. And it is an appraisal of what they believed Jesus could do for them. Save us, Lord. We're about to perish. They believed Jesus could do something for them. that They could not do in their own right. And then it also tells me that they had some faith. They did go to the master. They had an enormous amount of fear, I believe. But they had not very much confidence. But they did have some confidence. They had some faith. They had enough faith to cause them to go to Jesus. Mark records for us the question, Carest thou not that we perish? They were afraid. These men had a mixture of faith and of fear. These disciples hadn't learned the lesson yet that a storm with Jesus is much better than a calm without him. I venture to say there are a lot of us in this room this morning that haven't learned that lesson either. The storm with Jesus is better than the calm without him. You learned that? These men hadn't learned yet as long as Jesus was in the boat, there was not a chance of the boat sinking. Now, that was true of them in a physical sense, and it is true for us today spiritually. They were afraid of the storm. May I ask you a question? What are you afraid of today? 
somewhere down in the deepest recesses of your soul, I think all of us have something that we are afraid of. I did a survey a number of years ago asking Christian people what they were afraid of. And it was written, so there were no verbal answers and nobody standing in front of anybody else waiting for a response. Number one thing came back, over a hundred people responding, afraid of dying, afraid of dying. If Jesus is with you, you have all you need. When the day comes for me to go, when the day comes for you to go, do you know, do you believe it's going to be a promotion? I've got a better citizenship than I've got here. So do you. A citizenship that is in heaven where nothing can break through, nothing can steal, nothing can take away from it. You don't, I don't care what kind of retirement you got, you don't have that kind of guarantee. Afraid of dying? I suppose all of us have some concerns. I would be a hypocrite and I'd be telling an untruth if I didn't have some fears about it. What are you afraid of? These men were afraid the boat was going to sink. Lord, save us. We're perishing. Then in verse 26, we have the stilling of the storm. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, a perfect calm. I think there's something of great significance right here. And it's this. Jesus never heard the storm. They did. Jesus never heard the storm. He slept through it. But here's the great thing. He heard their cries. He didn't hear the storm. Storms never disturb him. Problems never upset him. He isn't at the mercy of nature. He isn't at the mercy of the problems that we encounter. But he hears the cries of those that belong to him, no matter what their condition. That's been the testimony of the saints from the beginning of time. He heard Job's cry. You've read about that. He heard the cries of the psalmist time and time and time again. He heard the cry of Daniel, and I could go on with the list. And again, if I can refer to mothers, uh, most mothers can sleep through a lot. <clears throat> a storm at night, neighbors' dogs barking, a snoring husband. But you let that baby in the room next door in a crib cry. Mom was on her feet and headed that direction. Our Heavenly Father does no less. He slept through the storm, but he heard the cries of those that belong to him. That's ever the way it is with our Heavenly Father. Jesus awoke, would you notice the order in verse 26? Fascinating to me. There's a storm going on. People feel like they're going to die. When Jesus was awakened, what, what was the first thing he did? 
he didn't move to the storm. He didn't move to the uh, to anything else. He didn't move to quench the storm, to stop the storm, to slow it down. What was the very first thing Jesus did? He rebuked the disciples. Omniscience doesn't need to hurry. He was in control of the storm all the time. He didn't need to hurry. But the disciples needed to hear his words because they were afraid. They had a lack of, they had a void where faith should have been. Interesting. Verse 26, he rebukes the disciples. Then he rebukes the wind and the waves. Again, omnipotence didn't have to hurry. When Mark describes the stilling of the storm, he uses a canine metaphor. The word that Mark uses is be muzzled. He spoke to the winds and the waves and said, be muzzled. And there was a great calm. He had authority over the elements. You know, usually, um, if you're around any body of water and there's a storm and finally the storm passes, you will notice that the waves and the sea, the river, the lake, whatever, it continues to bubble and, and to, the waves continue to come in for a while. But that didn't happen here. The verse says there was, it became perfectly calm at the end of verse 26. He rebuked them and they became perfectly calm. Our Lord was truly man, for he slept. He was truly God because he controlled the elements. He was and is the great God-man. Finally, we come to the creatures in verse 27. The men marveled, and they were saying, What kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. This is the rebuke of the disciples. It was a rebuke of their fear. And the cure for fear is always faith. The cure for fear is always faith. There are several things we should notice here. First of all, the trial of faith. James says, Can it all joy when you fall into trials and temptations? Now, why in the world would James make such a statement? On the surface, that just seems, that doesn't fit. Can it all joy? When you fall into trials, can it all joy when temptations come? On the surface, that just doesn't make sense. How can trials and temptations be kept, excuse me, count as joy? Because trials are designed to bring us to a place of trust. Trials are designed to bring us to a place of trust. Our faith is a gift from God, but he doesn't just give us faith and leave us alone. He refines that faith, and the process of trials and temptations does that. Peter says, you remember, trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. So James and Peter both, same thought. If we are in Christ, <clears throat> There will be trials. You know, it's often said the Christian life is no bed of roses. That's an interesting statement to me. I, I love roses and have grown them for a long time. I've never had a rose. I've never grown a rose in all of my life. 
and over 40 years I've been growing roses. I've never grown a rose that didn't have a thorn on it. Maybe the Christian life is a bed of roses because roses have thorns. God allows trials because sometimes we turn from Him and we get so far from Him, He has to get our attention. And sometimes one way our Heavenly Father gets our attention is through trials, through temptations. Always they are designed to engender faith, to be the genesis of faith. Don't be surprised when storms come. Remember this, just as the Savior was asleep on that little boat, He heard the cries of His people. And He will hear our cries today. You're encountering something difficult now? I don't know exactly what's going on in all of your lives. I know a few things. But I do know this for sure. Incontrovertible fact, based on the Word of God. He will hear your cries. And He will respond. I look out across the congregation. And I see people who are here this morning who are hale and hearty. And I can remember a day in a hospital room. Physician said to a family member, I don't think they're going to make it. God heard their cry and answered. He hears the cries of his people. Then, too, will you notice these men didn't have much faith, but they had a little bit. Even Jesus said, You men of little faith. He didn't say you have no faith whatsoever, you men of little faith. They had their doubts. They were afraid. They thought they were going to die. But there was a basic underlying essential attitude of trust. They knew to go to Jesus, and they did. So there was a a modicum of trust there, small, but it was there. And in their faith, they cried out to him. And though he rebukes them, He stills the storm. Lesson, God is going to see us through. I don't know where you are today, but I believe God's going to see you through. We need to get a hold of that. We need to believe it. We have a Savior who has committed himself to us. He will hear our cries. The reaction of the disciples is understandable. What kind of a man is this? Verse 27. This incident teaches us that the storms will come. Temptation, anxiety, fear, they will come. But he cares, he hears, and he will deliver us. You know, I haven't read it before now, but in chapter 8 of Matthew, verse 18, at the beginning of this incident, Jesus said, let's get, let's go over to the other side. When they got in the boat, Jesus said, let's go over to the other side. The disciples had forgotten that. He didn't say, let us go out to the sea and drown. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. Jesus is going to see us all the way home. All the way home. Friends, there's no guarantee. Listen to me. This is worth remembering, I think. There's no guarantee of a calm passage. But there is a guarantee of a safe one. There's no guarantee of a calm passage. 
but there's a guarantee of a safe one. One final thought I would suggest to you. I want to suggest to you, if Jesus is in the boat, you don't really want, you don't really want to be on the shore, do you? If he's in the boat, you don't really want to be on the shore. Jesus spoke peace to the winds, to the seas, and he could speak peace to your surging soul. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, grant to us, we pray, that modicum of faith, even that which is like the disciples had. They had enough faith to come to you. They had enough faith to cry out to you, Lord, save us, and to trust you. Give us, we pray, that kind of faith to trust you, even with our fears, even with our doubts at times, to have a sufficient amount of faith to trust you and to come to you and to cry out to you as these men did. Lord, save us. You heard them and you responded. And you will do no less for your people in 2017. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have promises to lean on. We have promises to hold to. And I want us to sing that as a hymn of appeal this morning. Number 354, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. And that's what we need to be doing. 354 in your hymnal. I trust that if there's something that's causing you grief, sorrow, consolation this morning, if you haven't already done so, why don't you cry out to Jesus? In your heart now. He's not sleeping. He hears. We've seen the disciples. We've sung the hymn. Now it is left for me and for you to leave and do it. That's my challenge to you this morning. Let's cry out to the Lord in the midst of the trials and the temptations, if that's your portion today. And remember, they are designed to engender faith. Our deacon of the day today is Mark Acuff. Mark is going to come and dismiss us with prayer. We'll sing God be with you until we meet again, and then we'll go our way. Mark? Would you bow and pray with me, please? <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for this day that you've seen fit for us to be here, not by chance, as we've heard, but by purpose. Thank you for a pastor who preaches your word without compromise. And we've heard the storm with Jesus is better than the calm without him. Father, we all have storms, <clears throat> whether we admit them or not, whether we see them or not. We all have storms, and it brings to mind your words that tell us, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. <clears throat> he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. 
He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Lord, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a comfort these words are for us in the storm, and what a comfort they are from our pastor. Thank you for speaking through him. Today we ask, Lord, that you would protect and bless those of our family who are in Jamaica. We ask you to bring healing to the sick and comfort to the grieving and encouragement to the discouraged. And where it's our duty and it's where it's our responsibility and our privilege to be your hands and your feet to them. Lord, make it clear to us and make our hearts willing. We ask you to bless our mission of the day, Endure International. Provide for them the finances and the courage and the support that they need to build your churches in the Middle East. And Lord, help us to be faithful to what you've called to do to support them. Go with us through this week. May all we do be for your glory and not for our own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.